Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm zooming into the 17th century palazzo home in Venice of Sky McAlpine to talk about her table full of love. I think it really helped me understand how you can make such a big difference by doing something really quite simple but that act of caring for someone can mean so much to them and can mean so many different things to them both in times of difficulty or in times of celebration. The daughter of Lord Alistair McAlpine, one of Margaret Thatcher's closest advisers, Skye grew up in Venice where she now lives with her own family. A classic scholar with a PhD in ancient love poetry, she's an expert on how the Greeks and the Romans understood love. And in her latest cookbook, she writes a culinary love letter to the friends and family whose recipes she's gathered over time, whisking in memories and a dash of affection. If the first two books were about Venice and friends and mismatched but beautiful china collected in flea markets, this is a deeper read in the language of love. Or is it? Well, I'd say the book is written with love, but it's not written in the language of love. It's written in the language of food. And I wanted to kind of really connect food with love and why we cook, sort of reconnecting to find that joy in in the act of cooking again. Yes, and that's funny because I read it completely differently. I read it as the language of love. In fact, I had some um, people over for dinner last night and I cooked the uh, the Nutella tiramisu and the beetroot um, tart. But we spent the whole evening talking about love and the different forms of love. And you talk about the different words for classical love and I was talking my daughter was there and we we were talking about the move from eros lust through philia friendship through ludos flirtatious love to now I don't know how to pronounce this is it storga storge I always say storge but I don't know if I pronounce it right (laughs) it's ancient Greek how would we know um it's storge and we talked a lot about storge unconditional love pragma is family love, to mania, obsessional love, to agape, the love of all things. And we spent hours talking about this extraordinary way of looking through the journey of life, through the journey of love. Uh, it's a it's a relationship, isn't it, between writer and reader. And as somebody who wrote it with recipes in mind, as a culinary love letter, you know, you, you talk a lot about where the recipes come from. How aware of are you of that when you're writing it? Well, I think, I mean, that's the magic of writing is that um, any written word comes to life from the moment that someone reads it, um, whether that's out loud or in their heads. Um, And that is a very, as you say, that's a very, very special relationship. I mean, I think as a cookery writer, one thing you're always conscious of is whether people will be cooking your recipes. Um, It's obviously so lovely to hear that you made the beetroot tart for supper that makes me very very happy but also what I think what I find as a cookery writer that's kind of magical is um this idea that as someone cooks your recipes they become theirs and they'll make you know over time small changes or big changes or they might even forget that the recipes came from your cookbook and that is kind of the happiest ending for for any recipe is to to weave its way into someone's own very personal story. And they are very personal. Some of them are incredibly intimate. I mean, let's go 
into your first food moment, Sue's Magical Chicken Soup. And this is your mum's best friend, Sue. And the only thing that she would eat while she was uh, living with cancer was Sue's soup. Tell us that story. So that recipe or that moment, I guess, in in my life really kind of was the inspiration for the book because it's such a clear illustration of someone making something with love and I guess the act of cooking really being the only thing that you can do but making such a kind of both tangible and um, emotional difference or impact on you know another person or another family's life so when you know my mother was sick and in hospital for quite a long time and Sue used to make chicken soup for her every day unprompted um, without us asking and would just kind of bring it to the hospital and drop it off in in plastic Tupperware and then come by the next day and pick up the empty Tupperware container and replenish it and it's such a I think it really helped me understand how you can make such a big difference by doing something really quite simple like cooking you know we can all cook um, you know, even if it's just making a, a cup of tea or making toast with butter or scrambled eggs on toast or something. But that act of caring for someone can mean so much to them and can mean so many different things to them, both in times of difficulty or in times of celebration. And you say that, you know, it is so much more than the chicken, the celery and the carrot. It was memories, hope, the taste of a world beyond a hospital bed. Um, it was Sue's precious time and her care and her love that went into that soup. And I was I was cooking with some children the other day at um, Brighton Community Kitchen, helping out with the year sixes. And uh, we were making red velvet cake and they were reading the, in- in- the ingredient list. And I said, have you put the magic in? And they went, what doesn't say magic on the ingredient list? I said, of course it's got magic. You know, what's your best wish? And one of them said, cure for cancer. So we, we whisked in the cure for cancer. And there's a wonderful kind of alchemy about cooking. And you talk about this a lot. The book is separated into chapters of comforting, seducing, nourishing, celebrating, spoiling. And you talk about the alchemy of cooking in each one. The seduction chapter is so much more about making pancakes, for example. It's about intention behind it, which is really lovely. Tell us about this one. Oh. Oh, well, that's so lovely of you to say. And, and what a wonderful story of the red velvet cake. I don't think I'll ever be able to eat red velvet cake again without um, thinking of that wonderful story and that wonderful moment. But yeah, the whole idea for the book is to shift the emphasis away from the skill of cooking. And my hope is obviously the recipes are foolproof and simple enough that it, you know, you follow the steps and it should all fall into place. It shouldn't prove a challenge. But I think so often as cooks, we focus on skill and less on intention. And actually the intention is what matters. And on an emotional level, ultimately, it's the intention that makes a homemade birthday cake taste better than one bought from a shop or, um, you know, a, a cup of tea taste better again you know supper in someone's home tastes better or more meaningful or more memorable than the most delicious exquisite michelin starred dinner in a restaurant um so it really the whole book is you're, you're so right about intention but i think that is not illustrated more so than in the seduce chapter which is really recipes to make people fall in love with you so tell us about when anthony fell in love with you when you fell in love with anthony take us back to oxford when you were 19 years old 
so we met we were both freshers at university and we met by chance and not long after we'd met Anthony was hosting a sort of house party because his halls of residence were in a sort of pink house on Merton Street to the back of college and whereas most other people unless you were in the pink house everyone else was kind of on the main part of the canvas Um, but the the nice thing about this pink house on Merton Street is that it had a kitchen I mean not by any means a glamorous kitchen but a you know basic very very basic kitchen and so he was with a couple of other people who were living in the house he was hosting a house party and um so I was so thrilled to be invited and I thought I should take something but I didn't know what I could possibly cook because I didn't have access to a kitchen so I made tiramisu because of course it's all raw so um you don't actually kind of really need a kitchen or kitchen equipment so I made it over the sink in my bedroom and I turned up at the party with a massive tray of tiramisu and literally everybody else turned up with beer so I kind of from from the get-go um I was the odd one out um but um Anthony loved the tiramisu and I still now attribute it to being kind of what made him fall in love with me and the recipe I make now is still very much the same the only change is I've added in a a layer of Nutella between the mascarpone and the Savoyardi biscuits which I love (laughs) and went down extremely well with my daughter uh, last night let me tell you but you do say don't try to impress and you do talk about the secret to a happy marriage and this is where we were talking about this. We were talking about this a lot last night about how to make a relationship work. And you've now got two children, they're three and ten, your boys. And, it, you know, you talk a, quite a lot about how to get through life. I think we talked when Achilles was just born last time. And, you know, there's a maturity about your writing now. And that comes from the reality of of having a family, of getting through the days. It's And a lot of it is the pragmatic. And I think that's really interesting. Tell me why you wanted to bring these different forms of love into the book and make it such a philosophical read. I think it felt important. I think... We have a tendency now to generalise the word love in the English language is used in quite a generic way. can mean anything from, you know, I love roast potatoes to I love my children to I love my husband to I love my best friend or I love shopping or I love going on holiday. And they're all a range of very, very different emotions. Um, and so I kind of, I thought it was interesting to, to delve a little deeper into that and to explore I guess the emotions that surround food and life because the two are so tied together so that's kind of what shaped the chapters where I guess the kind of overriding emotions that I feel in a context of cooking um and I agree you know the pragmatism I think that in many ways is driving force for the book because when you do we do cook every day when you make breakfast lunch dinner snacks in between and when you have children that load um becomes heavier rather than lighter for a while anyway because they eat a lot um and i think i found that it's easy to forget that it's a privilege to cook for the people that you love um and you know i do it too and it's so easy to sort of stumble into a feeling where it feels like it might feel like a chore or like an effort or like it's not worthwhile um and so by reminding ourselves that 
cooking is something that we choose to do and that it is an expression of love I think it gave, gives it more meaning and can feel less like a have to and more like a want to what I found interesting was that there's a slight melancholy is probably the wrong word but there's a a repositioning of you as a mother over time obviously you know we have certain ideas certain visions of how it's all going to go and then it's really nothing like that at all and you talk about how you always thought you were going to you know be cooking all the time for fun with the kids and actually fish fingers for dinner is is the reality and you know you talk about actually that's what you had when you were a child and of course we have these big ideas that it's all going to be great fun and they're going to going to cook cakes after school every day and you're tired you know it's not that sort of Enid Blyton mothering at all and again you talk about this a different type of love the stalker a more mature love it's unconditional but it's stoic and I thought that was really interesting I remember very very clearly having small children and feeling stoic (laughs) you know it's a very deep love that you have as a mother and as a wife you are keeping a family together this is how to be a mother and a wife you have to be quite stoic sometimes and you have to create a world where everyone is safe and nourished Um, I mean even when they've left home mine are 24 and 27 now and I'm still feeling very stoic that stalker love really resonated with me I mean I think it's it's certainly true that motherhood is different from how I imagined it to be um then I think most things turn out different from how we imagine them to be because as you say everything is a very personal experience and so however much um those who've come before you or friends might share their experiences yours is always going to be yours and different and come with its moments of joy and come with its own set of challenges so I think motherhood is no different from that um definitely i find you know in some ways cooking for family is much harder for me anyway than cooking you know for friends or um you know the kind of celebratory cooking that's sort of more of a one-off and it feels more more space perhaps for creativity and for fun and celebration and less the, the repetition of breakfast lunch and dinner every day um, but what I found and what I hope the book helps other readers who feel similarly to me is w- there are tricks and hacks, for want of a better word, to find for joy and to, you know, love um, uh, cooking, that sort of everyday cooking, as much as other kinds of cooking, even more. You know, I found, for example, having a set of go-to foolproof but I don't have to think about recipes when I'm tired you know there's a recipe for example for pasta la bibi which is just the the simplest tomato sauce both to make and to eat you know doing a lovely pasta with fresh tomato sauce I don't have to think about it I can do it in sort of 15 minutes from the moment we walk through the door to sitting down at table the boys will enjoy it you know so having um tools like that to support you really make it more and make it free you up to have fun I think and then another lesson that I've learned is not giving ourselves a hard time like there's nothing wrong with fish fingers for dinner in fact it's absolutely delicious um one of my happiest memories from childhood is fish fingers for dinner so not kind of working by a set of rules that are determined by society or other people or prejudices but letting yourself enjoy you don't have to work hard to feel good about 
yourself as a mother, I think you can relax into those moments where it's a bit easier. And then also, like you say, dwelling on those moments for celebration. So when you do make a birthday cake or when you do bake a cake together or they do clean their plates and really enjoy or relish the meal that you've made for them, really holding on tight to those moments because they are special and shouldn't be taken for granted. I think that one of the pressures, and it was a pressure, that I found um, as a mother of young children was the birthday cake. (laughs) Everyone seemed to make amazing birthday cakes. Everybody else seemed to be able to make amazing dressing up clothes and all sorts of things like that. And and the birthday cake was the kind of the, the symbol of the great mother. And yours is called the birthday cake of dreams. But it is a wonderful way of creating a tradition. Is that what you want to do? Create memories for your boys of this birthday cake of dreams? I mean, I think every time you cook, you're creating memories. And that helps me think, you know, find the emotional strength to think that it's a worthwhile use of time to cook beyond, you know, being a greedy person and wanting a yummy supper, um, which I am and always do. So um, for me, birthday cake, I mean, I just have an incredibly sweet tooth and I love cake and I love baking probably actually much more than I love cooking. So making the cake is probably almost more for me than it is for the boys. The bit for the boys is the addition of hundreds and hundreds of grams of Nutella um, to an otherwise quite simple recipe because they love it and you know so do I I mean definitely I know what you mean about birthday cakes these feats of engineering you know cakes that look like mountainsides or volcanoes or pirate ships I, I can't I'm I'm not an engineer I'm really not good at that kind of baking birthday cake for me is always you know it looks like a cake it might be laden with chocolate and I might kind of bring out a piping bag and try and scrawl their names on it um, messily. Um, and it always has lots of candles, but I don't think they're particularly beautiful. But they are made with love. And I think, again, the intention is what we keep coming back to. And that, for me, is the most important thing. And I think hopefully translating that to them so that they understand that it doesn't really matter what you make or how you make it or how beautiful it is it's the intention with which you make it that magic that matters and hopefully you know again for them you know if if they are if they enjoy baking and they like you know it brings them joy to make a cake that looks like a dragon then wonderful but if they just want to express love for someone then I think making a birthday cake for them is a really good way to do that and I hope they know that and kind of have that joy in their lives because it's a huge source of joy in mine. Again, you know, we look at the the, the original Greek and the Latin uh, for spoiling because you talk about spoiling, which is, you know, something parents and grandparents love to do. But in both Latin and Greek, it's about taking away, it's stripping, it's robbing, it's, it's pejorative. In English, it's about indulging. What do the Venetians, what do the Italians um, think about spoiling? I mean, having said that, I can see the endless number of nonnas who literally have put sugar in my children's mouths when they've been crying. Well, I think, you know, food can be very, very spoiling and that's part of the joy of it. And it is, as you say, a nonna's privilege to spoil and it's a friend's privilege to spoil and a godmother and an aunt. And on occasions too, it's a parent's privilege to spoil as well and I think if you're going to spoil with anything then food's 
a pretty good space to do the spoiling. No one, you know, ever became a bad person through being offered too much cake or um, learning to enjoy their food. I think that's a big thing for me um, with children is just shifting that emphasis onto enjoyment. I think particularly in the Anglo-Saxon culture, there's a lot of talk of, you know, eat your vegetables because they're good for you or, you know, finish everything on your plate because it's polite to do so. And actually that seems mad. We should just shift the emphasis onto eat your vegetables because they're delicious and you're going to enjoy them. Maybe you think you don't like them now, but try them because if you give them a chance, I think you'll really like them. And I kind of... Maybe this is uncompromising of me, but I think if I like it, if I genuinely think something's delicious, there's no reason why they shouldn't too. And they might not now think it's delicious. Maybe it's a journey to develop associations with those flavours and and you need know, to become comfortable and familiar with those flavours. But if something objectively tastes nice, everyone's going to kind of come round to that point of view given the, the time and the effort. So I think shifting for children especially, the emphasis away from food as something that we have to eat and that is quite boring and sterile and again very very pragmatic and shifting it more into a space where it is spoiling and it is a treat and treats you know don't just look like Nutella birthday cakes of course they look like that sometimes but they can also look like you know fresh strawberries or um, you know a really delicious pastel pesto with yummy fresh vegetables in it or um you know wilted spinach with a bit of butter and parmesan you know it can look so many different ways and finding that joy in them i think is one of life's great privileges and advantages and i think that finding the joy is the essence of celebration and you were just about to go into the period of lent um and i think that britain kind of looks on in some kind of envy actually i think because the difference between the protestants and the catholics and the people who fast is that they also celebrate with food so that food becomes something that you long for and that you find joy in at the end of a period of fasting whereas a protestant way of eating where you just eat pragmatically every day the joy somehow is made humdrum i mean i definitely found growing up here in in venice and um the way that you know you do your shopping at the market at the rialto primarily and it's very seasonal so you have the most delicious scrumptious produce but it's not there forever you can never get mangoes at the rialto market they just don't exist but you can you know get the most delicious peaches in summer but i couldn't get peaches now i couldn't get asparagus now i couldn't get um persimmons now each of those have their season and what i find is you really look forward to it because you can't have it for most of the year and then the moment comes and you really let loose and you eat peaches till you sort of feel slightly sick in your stomach because you've eaten so many um but it's such a good feeling and it's quite interesting i think there is a very similar cultural approach like you're saying to non-seasonal produce so for example at the moment for carnival we have fritelle which are these delicious round donuts rolled in sugar and peppered with um, fat raisins and kind of pine nuts and they're the most delicious thing and you have them for the carnival period but come tomorrow with the beginning of Lent that's it they're gone and you won't have them again for a year you have them maybe two three weeks maybe a month of the year Um, same for Galani and same for all sorts of other sweet baked goods that you that are associated in some way with a religious festival whether that's panettone for christmas or pandoro for christmas or 
um, you know, it might be mimosa cake for um, the Feast of Women on the 8th of March, which is coming up. And each of those are delicious and they're not made with ingredients that make it in any way impossible to make it at another time of year. It just wouldn't have the magic at another time of year. It just needs to be eaten just then. And you're building the memories for the next year and then you get excited about it and it's about getting excited about food. That That's where the joy really comes from. Let's talk about your final food moment, which is about philautia, which is self-love. Uh, you call it cocooning. You say it's an inward looking feeling, keeping yourself safe, looking after yourself. And it is hard to be a mother of young people, especially if you don't look after yourself. You really have to. And it's so hard to do that. Where do you find the time to give to yourself? And most of us are not very good at doing that anyway. But you really bring this out in the book. And I wonder if that comes from personal experience and something that you feel that you really have to say to others, cocoon yourself. I don't know. I mean, I think of all the people to cook for, the person I find it hardest to cook for is myself. And I don't really know why. I think it's, you know, as I say in the book, it is a a mixture of emotions, probably. But as you say, we're always, whether we're parents or not, we're always too busy, too rushed um, to cook for ourselves. Um, It's not really worth the while. It's not worth the effort. You know, that, that's a kind of overriding sentiment. Um, and so, you know, I'll happily cook instead sort of delicious feast for friends or for my family. But if it's me, my you know, the temptation is to have peanut butter on toast for supper. And, you know, peanut butter on toast is delicious and that's a wonderful supper. And if that's something that you're intentionally making for yourself, thinking, what do I really feel like? That's what I feel like. I'm going to sit down and enjoy it, then that's wonderful. But if it's something that you're making because you don't think you're, it's worth your while to cook a pasta for yourself or to cook whatever it is that you feel you would like, then I think that's that's a shame and that's an important part of, I guess, learning to be a grown-up is learning to care for ourselves whilst we're busy caring for others. Um, so I hope the Cocoon chapter, it's all recipes for one, and they're all, you know, simple things to make because, you know, let's be realistic. You probably don't want to wash, you know, dirty and wash 25 pounds if it's just supper for yourself or especially if it's supper for yourself. So they are all simple recipes, but they're all ones that I really, really enjoy eating. And you've chosen the rocket almond and date salad, which I did make last night to go with the tart. So you can make it for other people as well, because it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's incredibly simple. It's just simply rocket, almond and date. But importantly, it transports you as well. And this one takes you back to a holiday in Marrakesh. And that's that ability to dream through food is a part of the language of love. Take us just for your final moment to somewhere beautiful in Marrakesh. Absolutely. I mean, the first time I had a version of that salad was at L'Hotel, this beautiful Riyadh in Marrakesh and it was just a really lovely lunch and kind of the food was exquisite and the setting was very relaxed and it was just like a lovely lazy day but that salad I just became completely obsessed with it was the most delicious thing and they'd put which I do as well and isn't for everyone but I absolutely love they put a lot of fresh parsley in with the rocket and it kind of gives like a sort of minerally flavor that's fresh but also I think cuts through the richness of the kind of dates and the almonds which in the dressing which is quite sweet so it's lovely and leafy and green and I guess that's such a happy memory and it is nice every time I do make the salad I do kind of think back to that and ultimately like you say that's what food is it is memories that's the taste of food the flavor of food comes from the memories 
and the associations that we build over time. So I think when there are happy memories tied with food, it's nice to hold on to them by making that recipe again and again in, in different settings. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Food Chili Smith. And you can also find a little surprise over on Substack each week as I ask my guests for a little extra bite. Come to Venice with Sky in this week's post. It's a must read and listen. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and I will see you next week. Thank you.